So we come tonight to this last section and we continue in our discussion and we've titled this Faithfulness in Commitment. And really that's exactly what it is. It is faithfulness in commitment. There are these four facets of commitment that are confirming God's faithfulness to us in this text. And the book started with the opposite of faithfulness. It started with faithlessness as evidenced in our first five verses regarding Elimelech and his two sons who were faithless in effectively every arena in which we are exposed to them interacting. We see that they make many bad decisions, and we've talked about those at length. You can go back if you want to see and review some of those details and listen to those messages. Then in in verse 6, we began to see this faithfulness and commitment playing out. And in the first two verses, we saw this commitment to go. And that was the commitment by Naomi and by Ruth and by Orpah to leave the land of Moab and to return to Israel. Naomi decides to go back. She shows her faithfulness to God because of his provision. And the two daughters-in-law decide to go with her. You know, it was such a, 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 a wonderful illumination for me just to understand how to make the plural of daughters-in-law. You know, I always thought it was daughter-in-laws. And, uh, you know, I'm a simple guy, so those little things, they excite me. Um, particularly, as I'm sure I, I have, uh, you know, written papers and put that down and had a, several professors go, he's never going to learn. So I've learned something. I'm thankful. So our commitment to go was the first two verses, and then we saw the commitment to stay in verses 8 to 13. Naomi committed to getting her daughter-in-laws to stay. (laughs) There I went. Daughters-in-law to stay. Doesn't take long. See, I don't learn for long. So they go back and forth between these different discussion points of going and staying, and going and staying. And we talked about that tennis match. And the two main points of this section had to do with remarriage. And it was this discussion that went on between these women about that component, and it all centered around the aspect of a Leverite marriage. We talked about that, how that reflects the principles of Deuteronomy 25 and verses 5 and 6, where there is this element of the kinsman redeemer. When a brother passes and he lives in an area with another brother who is unmarried, then that unmarried brother is to come alongside to marry the brother's widow so as to have children, so as to continue the family lineage. And uh, an important concept from the Old Testament point of view, from a biblical point of view, but so much more even from a practical point of view, because all of this is pointing the way to Christ. Three different ways that that concept points the way to Christ. Genealogically, it points the way to Christ. Because through the lineage which will become Boaz, which we'll get into in our next time together, we see that there is the continuation that will become the seed lineage to the Lord Jesus Christ. We see that there is a spiritual continuation through Jesus Christ who redeems us. We are those who have a kinsman redeemer. We are those who are bereft of a right understanding on this earth, but who are brought back by Christ, who are drawn back and married and carried forward into an eternal state. This Old Testament concept applies to the church age as well as Israel, and that's so important for us to remember. Oftentimes, as we look through these ideas and we start to see things that 
have an allusion to the church, we all of a sudden start to forget Israel. Don't forget Israel. The Lord is not forgetting Israel. His promises to Israel are la olam, la olam, forever and ever. He will continue, and he will be faithful to restore them. So they are the recipients of the kinsman redeemer in Christ, and so also are we in the church age. A wonderful situation there. If you want to see just a great treatise, go back, and I know you have read it before, but read again Romans chapter 11. That great discussion of being grafted in as the wild olive branches kind of makes you feel a little, I don't know, crazy being the wild olive branches and being grafted in. But then don't forget to read the end where it says, don't mistake that grafting in as if you might as well also be cut off as Israel was if you are unfaithful. Then there is the third connection, genealogically, spiritually, and then physically. And we saw that back in the first verses. There was a physical connection through Elimelech. And Bethlehem, this was his home. This will come out in Micah 5, 2. O Bethlehem Ephrathah, too little to be considered amongst the nations. And, of course, that which would become the place where Mary and Joseph would return because they are in this lineage. And it's just, it's incredible the way the Lord weaves this together. The aspects of sovereignty in this text throughout what we've been talking about as well as this evening are absolutely stunning. The second major point in this, this second point of a commitment to stay is the repeated word return. Remember that? Return. We've talked about it over and over again. We've returned to it many times. Um, that probably is not the pastoral humor that will, my wife enjoys, but um, anyway. Seven times through verse 15, we've had this same verb return come up. God's doing something with this verb. What is it? What's he talking about? Return, return. This is the Hebrew verb shuv. Shuv. Now that doesn't mean a lot to us, but the point of it is very emphatic. Because that word return has an aspect of repentance with it. We see the verb come back in, in uh, an eighth time in verse 16. We see it for a ninth time in verse 21 and a tenth time in verse 22. Ten times in this section of Scripture. Don't miss that. God, God, you know, he knows sometimes that I can be a little thick when I'm reading his word, so he just keeps playing it and playing it and playing it. I was blessed. Gail brought me uh, a, a little commentary from Sinclair Ferguson on Ruth. And, and he was speaking about that. And he so perfectly dials it. He goes, you know, in English, it's kind of boring to see return written ten times. You know, it doesn't make for good grammar. doesn't make for exciting reading. God's not interested in us having exciting reading. He's interested in us getting the point. Don't miss the point. This word has a huge meaning. And it means, in many cases, to return to God has the idea, again, as I mentioned, of repentance behind it. Listen to 1 Kings chapter 8 and verse 33. 1 Kings 8, 33 reads, When your people Israel are defeated before an enemy, because they have sinned against you, if they turn, if they shove to you again and confess your name and pray and make supplication to you in this house, then I will restore them. 
we see more of that exact same context two verses later in 1 Kings 8.35. Zechariah 1.3 also carries forth this idea of shuv. In Zechariah 1.3 it says, Therefore say to them, Thus says the Lord of hosts, Shuv to me, return to me, declares the Lord of hosts, that I may shuv to you, that I may return to you. God says return to me so that I can return to you. What a perfect picture for us of our lives day by day. We have a need every day to repent, to shuv, to return to God so that he may return to us. You know, as we've talked about this purity study in the men's time, we talked about uh, a wonderful quote that Kent Hughes brings forward in his book. And he says in that book that sensuality and godliness cannot exist in the human mind at the same time. When he means sensuality, he's talking about those relationships outside of a proper biblical marriage. He says they cannot coexist in the mind at the same time. Is that not the case with many of our sins? When those things are in our mind, particularly those sins of commission, those which we do that we know are an offense against God, God is out of our mind. Frankly, we are out of our mind. And he says, shuv, return to me. Get rid of those thoughts. Repent and come back. So the focus of the verb is the heart of repentance. Ten times. Shuv, return well, this led to our third point in verses 14 to 18, which was a commitment to love that we talked about last week. And we discussed the, the tenderness and submission of Ruth's tone in, in the beginning there of, of verse 16, where Ruth said, Do not urge me to leave you or turn back from following you. Naomi has commanded her repeatedly to return to her people. Orpah has done so, her sister-in-law. And she doesn't come back with a sharp response. She doesn't come back with a no. I'm going with you. As we might expect. Perhaps as might even occur today. Ruth has a tender heart. She is gentle. She is submissive to her mother-in-law. And she pleads, please do not urge me to shuv. Now, we'd say, oh, well, now all of a sudden that word shuv has come back and it's got a different context. No, look at the context in the scripture. Turn is the same word shuv. Do not urge me to leave or turn back from following you. When it changes, it gives us the context that, of what it's about. She is, she is not saying that there is a repentant element here. She is just saying, please don't make me return. Don't make me shuv from coming after you, from being with you. So she is wanting to be a part of her life. And the whole point of all of these components is that Ruth is repenting and returning to God. And that's indicated by those five pairs in verses 16 to 17. We cannot miss the power of those sentences. Those five pairs. The first one, for where you go, I will go. And remember, there's this escalating component. Where you lodge, I will lodge. A yet stronger commitment. Goes on, your people shall be my people, and your God shall be my God. Where you die, I will die, 
each time more and more power and depth behind her commitment. But the other thing that is reflected in these, beloved, is a covenant language. Think about the covenants back from the Abrahamic covenant. Let me turn back to Genesis chapter 17. You're welcome to turn there with me as well if you're so inclined. In Genesis 17, of course, we have the Abrahamic covenant, first given in Genesis 12, restated in Genesis 15, and then again in Genesis 17. And in Genesis 17, 7, Genesis 17, 7, we read, I will establish my covenant between me and you and your descendants after you throughout their generations for an everlasting covenant, a la'olam covenant. How long will God's covenant be with Abraham's seed? Eternal, forever. Their generations for an everlasting covenant to be God to you and to your descendants after you. To be God to you, to be your God, literally. We could look into Leviticus 26.12 in the priestly covenant. And in Leviticus 26 and 12 it says, I will also walk among you and be your God and you shall be my people. The text that I read on Sunday for our benediction, a rather unusual benediction, but nonetheless I felt it very apropos from Ezekiel chapter 36. And the new covenant as Ezekiel reveals it in Ezekiel 36, beginning in verse 22, where the prophet says, Therefore say to the house of Israel, Thus says the Lord God, It is not for your sake, O house of Israel, that I am about to act, but for my holy name, which you have profaned among the nations where you went. I will vindicate the holiness of my great name, which has been profaned among the nations, which you have profaned in their midst. Then the nations will know that I am the Lord, declares the Lord God, when I prove myself holy among you in their sight. For I will take you from the nations, gather you from all the lands, and bring you into your own land. Then I will sprinkle clean water on you, and you will be clean. I will cleanse you from all your filthiness and from your idols. Moreover, I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit within you. And I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes. And you will be careful to observe my ordinances. And then in verse 28 of Ezekiel 36, you will live in the land that I gave to your fathers. You will be my people and I will be your God. Ruth's language is absolutely covenant language. Ruth is repenting and coming to Christ. And, and, and God wants us to see this every which way to Sunday. Don't miss what's going on here, beloved. Don't miss ten times return. Don't miss the covenant language. Don't miss this escalation in these commands. Don't miss the beauty of her presentation and her gentleness to her mother-in-law. The godliness that is represented. How do we deal with one another? How do we interact with our spouses? How do we teach our children to interact with us as we evidence ourselves interacting with our parents? Those of you that are parents and have parents yet alive or can reflect back to those times, were there times where you ever talked to a parent on the phone and hung up and went, you know, what's going on with my dad? What's going on with my mom? Aren't they thinking? 
Do we become critical in an inappropriate way? And what are our children seeing in that? Are they seeing us honor our father and our mother? Are they seeing a gentle response? Please do not urge me to turn back from following you. Honor them at all times. I am so thankful for this church and how many of you care for your elderly parents. Such a difficult job and so important to do. So important to minister to them in this way. Well, these have incredible significance to us today. All of these. Because for Israel, this is a recognition of the Messianic lineage. This little book is an unmistakable picture of Christ in every way. We're not reading the New Testament back in the Old Testament. We're seeing what is later fully revealed, but is understood now if they would but realize that which was shown to them. For the church being grafted in. And then verse 18, one of the most boggling verses in Scripture, where it says, When she saw that she was determined to go with her, she said no more to her. A mother-in-law that is silenced. I know, that was out of bounds. That was out of bounds, but it's Bible study, right? (laughs) I'm sorry. Um, I just couldn't help myself. Well, this brings us to our fourth commitment. The commitment to bitterness in verses 19 to 22. The commitment to bitterness. Look at them with me. So they both went until they came to Bethlehem. And when they had come to Bethlehem, all the city was stirred because of them. And the women said, is this Naomi? She said to them, do not call me Naomi. Call me Mara. For the Almighty has dealt very bitterly with me. I went out full, but the Lord has brought me back empty. Why do you call me Naomi? Since the Lord has witnessed against me, and the Almighty has afflicted me. So Naomi returned, and with her Ruth the Moabitess, her daughter-in-law, who returned from the land of Moab. And they came to Bethlehem at the beginning of the barley harvest. We all understand bitterness, do we not? You know, there is a picture in nature of a bitterness that I think perfectly exemplifies the most insidious of bitterness. And it is a a grizzly bear mother who is robbed of her cubs. Um, Having grown up in grizzly country, when there is a situation that uh, a mother is bereft of her cubs or the cubs are taken from her, uh, she absolutely goes crazy. She will kill everything that cannot get away from her, from small animal to human. And in many of those cases, those animals have to be euthanized because they become so dangerous. In Yellowstone Park, when those kind of circumstances occur through natural or man-made conditions, those female mothers will just destroy everything in their path. And, and if you're not aware of it, uh, a grizzly bear at about 8 feet tall can run about 35 miles an hour you're not getting away. And with claws, and a lot of times just about from the middle of my forearm to the tip of my finger, it's a a pretty mean, flesh-eating machine. But this is that aspect of bitterness, that root of bitterness that goes on. Well, we understand the commitment to bitterness, and we want to understand it a bit better. 
there's three aspects in our text today, three aspects of the return that explain the root of bitterness. Three aspects of the return that will explain for us this root of bitterness. Our first is in verse 19, and it is a return of uncertainty. A return of uncertainty. The author brings us across a three to four week walk and well over a hundred miles in the first few words of the first part of verse 19. Where it says, so they both went until they came to Bethlehem. Now that's a massive transition. There is a significant amount of time that occurs there that we're not privy to that which goes on. And it goes on and it says, all the city was stirred because of them. The Hebrew verb for stirred here is an onomatopoetic word. Now there's a, a big 50 cent seminary word for you. Onomatopoetic. But it is a very good word because it means something where the word expresses the emotion or the meaning behind it. Let me give you an example from Greek. There's a Greek word, gagousmos, and it means grumbling. Now listen to it. Gagousmos, gagousmos, gagousmos. There is an element in the sound of the word that has a grumbling nature to it. So also with this Hebrew verb, which is hum. Hum. Can you hear that? Hum. 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 The word means to groan or to hum or to be agitated. But it can also mean to be excited. But think about it in our context. All the city was stirred because of them. Hum. All the city was hum. Can you see all those women? Hum. Hum. Here's Naomi. Hum. Hum. There is this whole element behind it of of uncertainty and of groaning. It's the same word that the was used of the people of Jerusalem when King David decided to bring the ark back to Jerusalem after Uzzah had been killed. And the people are going, hum, hum, I don't know, hum. So there's this element of, of foreboding. And yet also an excitement can come with it. This is a double-faceted sword. Interestingly, as very much of our text is as well, the author is purposefully drawing us through to get us to think about what's here. Remember how we talked about those aspects back in the first few verses where some will hold to a feminist interpretation of Ruth because of the the reflection of the daughters returning to the mother's house. And what we remember mentioning was that it's the author taking that particular female perspective and casting that to the text. Well, in this portion, he's casting to us this distinction and and a decision point for us to decide what's going on. And there will be much of it this evening. Well, the same aspect of hum can be true in our church, can't it? When we see someone come to visit, a well-dressed young couple comes in. Our hum might be hum, hum, we're excited. What a blessing it is. Let's make sure we get to meet them. What if it's a single man that looks like he just, you know, crawled out of the slough down the way? Um, um, I don't know. Spurgeon said that the love of God will make you to welcome every beggar and harlot to bring them to the feet of Jesus. 
What should have been the right response of those ladies? What should have that hum reflected? An excitement, a joy. But perhaps it did not. And I think we'll find as we look into Naomi's response that that's exactly what was going on. Notice the women are not talking to Naomi, but they are talking about her. Very clear from the context in verse 19 where we see there, and when they had come to Bethlehem, all the city was stirred because of them, and the women said, is this Naomi? They're not speaking to Naomi and Ruth. They're speaking about her to one another. Can you imagine how difficult this was for Naomi? One commentator says that she was a woman of empty hands, an empty home, and an empty heart. How should she have responded? Consider a New Testament passage with me for just a minute as we think about that because it's really going to set much of how we understand the rest of this text. Hebrews chapter 12 and verse 11. Hebrews 12, 11, very familiar to us, and it says, All discipline for the moment seems not to be joyful but sorrowful. Yet to those who have been trained by it, afterward it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness. As we experience discipline, are we learning the peaceful fruit of righteousness? I'll bring it right home for me. As we go through the sale of our home and the offer that we were going to receive, certainly by Saturday night or Sunday at noon, no later than Sunday night or Monday morning, and well, they've just been slow in signing it, so it'll be Monday night and Tuesday to find out that they're not going to make an offer. Is it yielding the peaceful fruit of righteousness in your pastor's heart? Better today than it was on Tuesday. And we all have those things in our own lives. And now there is this hum going on about her. Beloved, how would you feel in this situation? Better yet, how do you deal with difficulties in your life? A severe sickness, either of you or of a family member. A major trial in life either a job or relationally, a loved one that passes on, what does your hum reflect? Excitement? Is the discipline reflecting the peaceful joy, the peaceful fruit of righteousness? Or is it a burden? Scottish preacher George H. Morrison said, nine-tenths of our unhappiness is selfishness and is an insult cast in the face of God. I've spoken before how so often when we respond in a wrong way, we are like that spoiled child who is willing to receive from our Father God's hand all of the blessing and gifts that he gives us every day, and we want to climb up into his lap and slap him in the face because he hasn't given us what we expect when we want it. My way, my time, my toy. I can be just as much like that stingy little three-year-old as any three-year-old on the planet. And I think Naomi may have struggled with this too. You see, there are two responses here. There is Naomi's response, and there is Ruth's response. And there is an ambiguity that's placed before us. These two are being placed side by side for our consideration. There is the response of these women. Is it a murmuring and grumbling? Is it an excitement? There is the response of Naomi. What is her response? What is Ruth's response? Well, they're being placed so we will see them. And it draws us back to ask, where would we be in this case? 
there is a return of uncertainty. And the second point is the return of unhappiness in verses 20 and 21. A return of unhappiness. Look at these verses with me. She said to them, Do not call me Naomi. Call me Mara. For the Almighty has dealt very bitterly with me. I went out full, but the Lord has brought me back empty. Why do you call me Naomi? See, the Lord has witness against me, and the Almighty has afflicted me. She speaks to the women. She doesn't wait to wonder. She hollers at the woman. We don't see it as prominently in our English text as we do in the Hebrew. But the way the Hebrew text is structured, there is a particular style that is so emphatic and there is a ramping up of the way in which it is written to show that she is building to this peak. She, there are commands that she uses. She doesn't request that they not call her Mara or Naomi. She commands them, do not call me Naomi. Because... She is not just going to have them talk, but she is, going to remand, she is going to respond to them. Her response indicates years of frustration. And she now demands a new name. We can understand this. We ought not be judgmental of understanding this component. We can see where she is. We can sympathize. We can empathize. The aspect of her name is very significant. You know, names had an immense meaning in the Old Testament period. You remember, as we talked about from our first message, her name Naomi meant pleasant or lovely or even delightful. But now she quickly rejects that statement and now she commands them to give her a new name, that is Mara. This is a very unusual Hebrew word. It has, it's from the root marar and it means bitterness. She says her name is literally bitter. Because the Lord has dealt bitterly. He has dealt Mara with me. Look at this text and understand all the components that are going on in these verses. She said to them, do not call me Naomi, call me Mara. Now, start looking closely with me. For the Almighty, note the reference to God, God Almighty, has dealt bitterly with me. I went out full, but the Lord has brought me back empty. Why do you call me Naomi? Since the Lord has witnessed against me and the Almighty has afflicted me. Four times we see divine names there. And notice the sequence in which they occur. Both ends have Almighty. In the middle is Lord, Yahweh. There is a point of grammatical emphasis that even our English Bibles are showing us. This is a chiasm. It's drawing us to the, tent, to the center. It's the, the Greek letter key or, or chi. It's an X. And the focus is that both things on the sides come towards the center. And we look at where those two lines cross, and that is our focus. And the focus between the two words here for Lord is the Lord brought me back empty, and the Lord has witness against me. The center of the focus is the Lord has brought me back empty, and he has witnessed against me. It's very significant in her response and the way she brings this forward she is making a statement against god the author wants us to focus on these two facts the lord brought her back empty she is acknowledging that the hand of yahweh is in her life that this is why this has happened 
and that it is furthermore his doing and responsibility, yet she is still bitter about it. What do you think about this? Is this Naomi responding to horrific situations in a way that is yet still godly? Or is this an ungodly response that is sin? It's an important question because we are in the same situation at some time in our lives. We have horrific tragedy that comes into all of our lives. I would say without exception, we have all experienced it. How do we respond? Is she exhibiting the peaceful fruit of righteousness? No, she's not, not at all. Let me explain a few reasons why. The word almighty here is a a very unique word, one we're very familiar with. There's a very familiar song about El Shaddai is the name almighty that is used here. It's used twice in two verses. There isn't another location like that in the scripture. It's a very unique word, and it says that Shaddai has dealt bitterly, and Shaddai has afflicted me. These applications are significant because the Hebrew bitterly and afflicted both relate to curses. She is saying that there is a curse that has been brought upon her by El Shaddai. And she is experiencing that because of the disobedience. This all goes back, and we could go back to Deuteronomy 28 or Leviticus 27, where we see the blessings and curses section of the Old Testament law. Very important aspects for us to understand because of what God was revealing. Deuteronomy 28 has about 14 verses of blessings that Moses tells the children of Israel that they will experience if they will be obedient to God. And then about 56 verses of curses. Because God knew, Moses knew, and ultimately the people knew too. That it were those cursing sections that were going to come forward. The word almighty here means strength or might as it says. But the, the big deal about it is the level of strength. The word Shaddai means mountain. When it is combined with El, which means God, or in this context, El Shaddai, it means the one of the mountain or the God of the mountain. The God of the greatest power. Mountains were an issue in Israel that had tremendous significance. There were not a lot of them, and those that were there were huge. Think about the Old Testament references, Mount Sinai. So many different places. Mount Zion, which was really more of a hill than a mountain amongst those rolling hills. But there are some massive mountains in that country. Up in Lebanon, uh, a mountain of over 10,000 feet, which just would have towered above everything. Well, this was the God of the mountain, and he is the one who has dealt bitterly. He is the one who has afflicted. This concept of full here that's discussed Because Naomi said, call me Mara, for the Almighty has dealt bitterly with me. And I went out full, but the Lord has brought me back empty. The aspects of fullness that she is talking about here are with regards to her life as a wife and a mother. There was nothing that was lacking in her life with the exception of that famine. She was full. She had two children she had a husband and yet now Yahweh has brought me back empty but it's not just brought me back 
It has caused me to be empty. There's a unique Hebrew verb form that is putting all of the emphasis upon the subject, which is Yahweh. The Lord caused me to be empty. I was full, but he has caused me to be empty. There is an incredible bitterness in what's coming out. She is deliberately and powerfully placing the blame upon God. The Almighty has been Mara. He has dealt bitterly with me. The Almighty has afflicted me. The Lord has brought me back empty. The Lord has witnessed against me, that witnessing a legal jurisdiction which carries forward this idea of judgment. She understood there was a legal judgment against her. Whatever we're going to say about Naomi, there's one thing not to miss here, beloved. She understood full well the sovereignty of God. There's no one else that she is placing blame upon. God is the one who is responsible for all of it. The question is, what about this response? Is it a righteous response? We could ask ourselves the exact same question about Job, could we not? I love reading the book of Job. The Bible reading plan that I use takes me through Job uh, about five to six times a year. And I love it. And every time I read it, I just read so carefully. I'm trying to, to discern what Job is saying and what his friends are saying. Where is the error in what they're saying? Where is the truth in what he's saying? And where is his sin? Because rest assured, he does sin, doesn't he? Because the Lord comes out in chapter 38 and spanks him big time. Who are you to contend with the Almighty? Where were you when I laid the foundations of the earth? You want to talk back to me, boy? The whipping stick is coming your way, and it is not going to be pretty. And eventually we see Job respond, and I put my hand upon my mouth, and I, I will not respond again, for I have responded once, but not twice. Job was in sin. Naomi is in sin. The return of uncertainty, the return of unhappiness, and lastly, the return of the unexpected. The return of the unexpected in verse 22, where it says, So Naomi returned, and with her Ruth the Moabitess, her daughter-in-law, who returned from the land of Moab, and they came to Bethlehem at the beginning of the barley harvest. All of a sudden, we're brought back into context with Ruth. And you know, it just flashes me back to that return of unhappiness in our previous point. How is Ruth feeling here? You know, is Naomi's going off and, and blaming God and, you know, I'm, I'm afflicted and I'm judged and I'm empty and I have nothing? I, I just kind of want to, you know, think of Ruth standing there going, what am I, chopped liver? I, I just walked several hundred miles with you. But there's no response like that from Ruth because that's not the way Ruth would respond. It gives us a little insight into this parallel that's being set up. How will we respond? Well, this seems in verse 22 like little more than a summary, right? It's the, the who, the what, and the where of chapter 1. Beautiful, let's move on to chapter 2. Whoa, 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 whoa. Let's not get there too fast. Look at the emphasis that is placed upon Ruth. Ruth the Moabitess, her daughter-in-law, who returned from the land of Moab. 
Now, I, I'm no grammarian, and, and my doctoral professors will uh, scream that from the hilltops. Um, but I don't think you would put someone who's the Moabitess, who was from Moab, in the same sentence. Right? We got it once. No. Don't miss it. Don't miss that aspect. We've talked about Moab and all that they are. How they were the people that were m- the most abominable to Israel. But this is Ruth the Moabitess. She is not Ruth, the one who has repented. She is not Ruth, the proselyte. She is not Ruth, the one who was faithful to her mother-in-law. She is Ruth, the Moabitess. Her daughter-in-law, who was from Moab, that deplorable place, that place of Sodom and Gomorrah, that place of incestuousness of Lot and his daughters, that place that is continually making war with us and hating us and attacking us, and who we hate just as well. But then don't miss as well the last five words. They returned at the beginning of the barley harvest. The barley harvest in Israel is in the spring of the year. It's a time of new life. It is the beginning of the season of harvest. Now, being a a mountain boy from Idaho, when I saw harvest, I'm thinking that's fall. Because we do all our harvesting in the fall. That's when everything, the crops come to fruition. I mean, now they've got some winter wheat or whatever. But in, before all that time, before all our genetic engineering, crops came up in the fall, and that's when we harvested. No, not in Israel. The barley harvest is in the spring of the year. It is the beginning of the harvest season. The wheat harvest will follow. There is a series where this is a time of fullness. It is carrying us back to the time where Yahweh visited his people, where he brought food to them. Back to Bethlehem, the house of bread. The bread has come. The barley has come back. And they just happen to be coming at this time. It's a time of new life. It's a time of great celebration in Israel. It's a time of the celebration of Pentecost after 50 days. Alexander White often told his Edinburgh congregation that the victorious Christian life is a series of new beginnings. And he was right. He was right. The women are embarking on a new life. Naomi is coming in bitter and angry. Ruth is coming in faithful and obedient. Which will you reflect? Every day is a series of new beginnings in our life. To leave behind that which was old. To leave behind the sins that so easily ensnared us. It's a new day at our church. I'm so thankful to be here with you. I believe God has brought me here to spend the rest of my life here. And after moving those books and trying to sell this house, I assure you he has. So we're going to get along. It's just going to happen. You're going to have to kill me. Unless he rips me from this place, I'm spending the rest of my life here. And I'm excited about it. I'm thankful for what the Lord's doing, striving to be faithful and committed and to grow each day in my weaknesses and become stronger and better, be more faithful and ministering and loving and caring for you. How about you? Are you ready to embrace the new day? Are you ready to embrace the unexpected? With all that has gone on in the church, it would be easy to have an element of bitterness. I'm bitter against such and such. I'm bitter against that group. I'm bitter against this. Who do they think they are? I pray that you will consider this text as a way for you to understand how your attitude must reflect what you're going to do next. 
Will you show them that they, like Ruth, are commanded to be faithful and committed? To reach out to those who have gone out, to love them, to have opportunity. I'm so thankful to hear of Glenn's story and Kathy when you, you, know, you ran into your, that kind of awkward situation this week and the Lord orchestrated that in a beautiful way in such a perfect timed setting. God's going to bring opportunities for all of you to interact with those who are not with us any longer. How will you interact with them? Perhaps they'll come back and join us. Will we welcome them with open arms or will we... Hmm, And if we are blessed to have those come back, I pray you will return with open arms, that there will be an excitement. Hmm, what a praise to have you with us. What a delight to see you. If it's for a service one time, if it's downtown, just to rejoice and ask them how they're doing in the Lord. What a gift it is that we get to run out and welcome one another as we would welcome those who we have never met, as we would welcome those we may once have considered those who are enemies or bitter. We rejoice that the Lord Jesus Christ has done all of this in our lives. And it's time, beloved, for us to exhibit the peaceful fruit of righteousness. For we know that if we do not learn from the Lord's discipline in our lives, He will be faithful. He will take us back through it. For he will make certain that we learn because that's how much he loves us. He's not as hard-headed or quick-tempered as we are. So let us be faithful to carry forth this truth, to purpose, to live, and to respond as Ruth did. And when we catch ourselves being a little bitter, I pray that through the discipleship and accountability relationships, that we'll be ready to lay a size 4, 5, 6, 8, 9, 10, 11, right up alongside someone's backside and say, snap out of it. This is not how the Lord would have us live. And that because of that, we would grow and that our love for Christ would exude more and more in each of our hearts, throughout our congregation, throughout our homes, and in everywhere that he would take us. Because that's what he wants. And that's what we see here. We praise him as he does that in our lives, won't we?